Hello and welcome to the Stalk and I podcast for solo parents and those considering solo parenthood by donor conception. I'm your host Mel Johnson, the solo parenthood coach and solo mum to my five-year-old daughter. Series six of the podcast is focused on solo parenthood stories and speaking to a range of solo mums about their path to parenthood. Before we get into today's episode, did you know that I offer individual and group coaching courses? I cover those considering this path to parenthood, those who are pregnant, as well as those who are looking to thrive as solo parents and have really confident conversations with our children and also those around us. If you are interested in coaching, check out more information on thestalkandi.com forward slash group coaching. Over on the Thriving Solo podcast this month, I speak to dating coach Danielle Norman. We talk about the challenges of dating when you want to become a parent as well as dating when you are a solo parent. Head over to the Thriving Solo podcast to have a listen. And now we head over to today's guest, solo parent Alexandra Collier, author of the new book Inconceivable, her memoir of becoming a solo parent. Alexandra, so nice to have you on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. You're more than welcome. I'm so excited to talk to you. So you are the author of a book that has just been released in the UK, Inconceivable. Um, And for anybody who listens to this podcast, they'll know I'm an absolute bookworm, love a good book. And so when a book comes out about solo parenthood, obviously I was super excited to read it and actually just devoured this book so quickly. It was one like I couldn't put down, partly because it's a brilliant book and partly because I associated with so much of it because so much of it was similar to my own story. So before we get into the podcast, do you want to give yourself a bit of an introduction? Sure. I'm a solo mum. I live in Melbourne in Australia with my four-year-old Donny Conceived son. And I am the author of this memoir, which is called Inconceivable, which is about my journey to solo motherhood. Perfect. Thank you. So I think... I could ask you so many questions about the book because so much of it is, is like I say, so relatable. I think you start off talking about splitting up with someone because you didn't have the same vision of having a family. I think that is the hardest way to split up with someone because there's nothing wrong with the relationship. In fact, you talk about the relationship being really good, but you just don't want the same thing. How hard was that for you? It was really difficult, especially in your mid-30s, you know, and I was living in New York. I'd been there for about 10 years working as a playwright and I was in a relationship with an American man. We were very happy. Everything was going well and the only sort of snag was the fact that he wasn't ready to have a baby yet and I had woken up to this sudden longing to have a baby in my mid-30s and he didn't share that with me. So it required a lot of soul-searching. We went to therapy together. You know, he was very progressive, open guy. And that's why I loved him. He suggested we go to therapy and talk about it. But ultimately, I realized that I would deeply regret staying in the relationship and waiting and started to get very depressed, which was telling me that I needed to get out. And I'm not usually a depressed person. So I thought, oh, this is telling me that this relationship is not going to make me happy because I want a baby more than I want to stay with this man. And I realized that, you know, at the time I thought I can meet someone else. There's still time. I was 35, well, I was 37 actually when the relationship ended. 
and it was it was a really really difficult decision but of course now I don't regret it but at the time it felt very counterintuitive and it felt like it was going against the sort of prevailing wisdom that everyone is giving you which is like you found your man hold on to him (laughs) <laughs> yeah I mean I I split up with a long-term partner at 29 and thought oh I've got ages to meet somebody and <laughs> and still didn't because it's difficult to meet someone that you really connect with isn't it so so I can imagine it was super difficult to make that decision but I think sometimes if you just have that inherent knowledge that you want a child then you know that's a decision made in that sense isn't it Yes, and I think I felt like I'd been possessed by the devil almost. It was like I woke up to this really fierce desire to have a baby and I was really hit by this longing and that I was not going to be happy. Something that you say in the book is that you felt like people judged you a little bit for being like too picky and people said you should lower your standards and that we should settle for someone, basically, because for some reason, society sees settling for the wrong person as a better option in some cases than doing it solo. What's your view about that? Yeah, I have a very conflicted feeling around that because, you know, obviously there is no perfect person. And as we know, romantic relationships never as per the fantasy that's been dictated to us. But I could very clearly tell that these men that I was dating, who were lovely guys, a lot of them, were not people that I wanted to spend my life with. And that was so clear to me. And I thought, I can't bring a child into this situation. Ethically, it felt unconscionable to sort of stay in something that I wasn't interested in, that was not going to make me happy long-term and was ultimately going to end in a relationship split and I knew that then I would have to co-parent with someone potentially for the rest of my life who I didn't love and I didn't really want to be in a relationship with so I think that was just so willing to sort of settle for something that was subpar especially because I'd actually been in a good relationship so I knew what a good relationship was and I think the other thing is when you're dating at the beginning and you've got this pressure hovering over your romantic life because your reproductive timeline is running out it's very hard for a relationship to unfold at a natural pace So maybe I was being picky, but I was under a kind of deadline, you know, and I couldn't really wait to see if these things flourished into something that was more meaningful. And I was going off the gut feeling that I had based on however many months I was spending with whatever guy I was dating. So I think ultimately you just have to trust yourself. And, you know, I think a lot of the time as women, we're sort of told to sort of overlook red flags and sort of just you know squint a little bit and just hope it'll be okay but I did not want to do that and I don't I think other women should have to do it either (laughs) and I think what's really interesting is because I've delved into the research quite a bit and quite a lot of the research says that one of the biggest negative impacts on children is when their parents go through a separation and so not having one parent but having parents that go through a separation depending on the circumstances and and the separation and so you know there's there's a big part of you who wants to prevent that from happening if you are really feeling like you know if you settle for somebody and you know deep down it's not right like you say the result possibly is that you will end up in a separation and actually that's not going to be in the best interest of our children so 
yeah, I think a lot of people get that that same advice, but I really, really understand what you're saying about it's so difficult dating in your 30s, wanting a child, letting it naturally unfold. I think you've articulated it really well. It's how do you do that when you've got this time pressure over you? It's so hard, isn't it? It really is. So one of the things that you say in the book, which I really also am like spending a lot of time mulling over is, you know, is it a human requirement or is it cultural conditioning? That's one of the things that you that you asked yourself. You were talking about, is meeting somebody a human requirement or actually do we think we have to meet someone because it's cultural conditioning and society painted as the happily ever after, you know, version of events. Tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, I think part of the reason I wrote Inconceivable was that I wanted to destigmatize the solo path to parenthood. And the thing about being a single woman, especially in your 30s, there's this idea that you have to meet someone, anyone now before it's too late, and that you're sort of a dangling thread unless you've partnered up with someone. And so I did feel this kind of pressure to meet someone and sort of follow the romantic trajectory that we're supposed to follow and do the traditional things that we're supposed to do. And of course, I aspired to that as well, because it sounds lovely in theory, you know, this idea that you'll meet the love of your life, you'll partner up with them, you'll make a family with them. And I wanted all those things. And I don't think there's anything wrong with wanting that. And I think people do find great happiness in partnerships. I don't disagree with that. But I also think that it is possible to parent on your own. And often I encounter women, I'm sure you do, Mel, as well, who say to you, oh, I wish I'd done that. Or yeah. that would be so much easier if I didn't have a partner. You know, that they their partners are sort of this, these man children that they're annoyed by who are yeah. pulling their weight and they feel constantly frustrated by having to sort of look after two babies. It's like a man or the three, however many children they have plus their partner. And so it's funny, I think, that the traditional story that we've been sold doesn't always measure up in real life. And I, you know, I'm careful about how I talk about that in the book and I'm careful about how I talk about it in life because I think, you know, I don't think anyone is making the wrong decision by falling in love and wanting a partnership. But I do think we all know, and it's statistics bear out the fact that, you know, a lot of partnerships don't work out. And as you said, end up with a separation. And, you know, part of the research I did when I was writing this book and thinking about becoming a solo mum and looking at studies for inconceivable was the fact that for a child to flourish, two parents are not what's important. What's important is the quality of family relationships. And that really is vindicating. And, and, and I think a lot of solo parents, all solo parents I know, all of them who I'm friends with, go into this with such deliberate, thoughtful, conscientious desire. And isn't that what we want for our children, for them to be wanted and loved? And so I think, you know, it, it is an option. It's, I'm not saying it's the easiest option, but it's, I think it's a possibility and I wanted to write about it in this book, Inconceivable, with all the nuance and the complications of the good and the bad and the regret and the desire and the hope and the grief and, you know, show it all for what it is. And I think it's so useful for people because you... I think most people go on a journey with it. And sometimes if people speak to me, they're like, oh, but you're so confident about it. And, you know, you seem so sure. And But that 
that wasn't how I was four years before I decided to do it. And that's what's great about having books like Inconceivable because you do write openly about the entire journey. And I think that really helps others who are like, why am I finding this decision so difficult? Why don't I know if it's the right thing for me? Because it just shows that the journey that lots of people go on to, to make the, the to see if it's the right decision for them so I I really like how you share everything and how you felt about it and I think part of that was it was really interesting and I think it's probably more common than possibly is written about is your initial search for a known donor I think a lot of people start with that thinking okay well maybe I know somebody maybe I can do this with with somebody I know talk to us a little bit about where you were in terms of originally wanting to use a known donor? I thought initially that I would have a donor who was a friend. It seemed sort of ideal to have someone you could you knew, who you liked, who whose characteristics you kind of look at across the room and, you know, someone you trusted. And that seemed like a great option. It also seemed like a more affordable option. You know, fertility treatment's not cheap. And it, even though you technically, sperm donation here is, in Australia is altruistic donation only, but still the woman has to pay for it when she goes to a clinic to use the sperm. So I had this idea that I would find the right friend, but then I realised slowly through, you know, process of investigation and thinking more about it that I would be in a kind of partnership of sorts with someone who was my friend and it would be like a marriage in a way, be akin to a marriage, even if they weren't a co-parent. This person might potentially want to be a co-parent. They might have different feelings once a baby is born. You never know how someone's going to feel when a baby arrives. And I couldn't really find the right person who fit those criteria. Some people do, and I and some people have a really great experience. But I, you know, I was choosing to parent solo. So it was just sort of an added level of complication. In Inconceivable, I write about sort of that whole sort of journey and there's a lot more in it which you know I think women should read and think about and I hope they read Inconceivable partly for this reason which is to think about the ethics of whose sperm you're using and whether that person is doing things like abiding by family limits and I'm not sure of the legalities in the UK but in my state in Australia for instance you can only donate to 10 families so you just want to be make sure that you know this person is doing the right thing, that they're not just on the internet giving their sperm to hundreds of people and that your child isn't going to be related to a litter of children down the track. So there's just a lot of ethical considerations when it comes to the sperm donor. And I think it is super powerful to read the chapter where you were thinking about using a known donor because I do think it's a journey lots of people go through and I think you talk about some very real considerations and, and how you came to your decision. So I, I think that will be really useful for, for others. And then you talk about um, you talk about when you finally made the decision um, to pursue solo parenthood. It was like a revelation, you said, um, you felt such relief and, and liberation. And I, I think it's sort of something that so many of us take so long to make. And then when you think, no, I am going to do this, it, it can feel like such a relief, can't it? Yeah, it really did feel like a form of liberation to sort of be empowered and sort of to be emancipated from this endless dating cycle of hoping to meet someone just in time. And I think 
unfortunately, I had this experience that I think a lot of women are having, which is that they're dating men who are maybe not quite ready yet to have children or are unsure. And so you feel like your future is hanging, you know, is being held in someone else's hand and you're waiting for this man to give you permission to do this. And that is very frustrating, especially as a modern, you know, liberated feminist to be waiting for a man to tell you, to say, yes, you're, you're allowed to have a baby now, or yes, we're going to have a family now, when you know very clearly that that is what you want. So I did feel like this huge sense of freedom. I mean, of course, I was also trepidatious about it, but I think this is one of the first generations in a way, you know, that is doing this. You know, it's not, it's pretty recent history that women are using donor sperm. Sure, yeah, there's always been lesbian couples and, you know, single lesbian women doing this, like sort of on the down low, especially when it, you know, it hasn't been legal and stuff. But I think this is a relatively new moment in history and that's exciting. And it's also, it's a real gift to have that kind of freedom. I mean, it, it's a huge privilege, obviously, to be able to afford to do it and to have the capacity to do it and hopefully to have the community around you to do it. But isn't it great that we're part of human history as women where we can make families of our own making? I, I agree with you so much. The frustration that your opportunity to become a parent is linked to meeting somebody who wants that same thing. And it's like somebody else is in charge of your whether you're going to be a parent or not. And it's so frustrating, particularly, and I don't think it should be this way, but when you feel like you've put a lot of effort in, it's not like you've just sat back and thought, hopefully I'll meet someone, you know, you've actually really tried to, to meet someone. And then you just think, why should someone else be in charge of whether I'm able to become a parent or not? It, it feels very frustrating. And therefore, we are so lucky to live in a time where we can make a different decision. Yeah, we really are. So one of the things that you talk about in the book is having a friend who had already become a solo parent. How useful was it for you to know somebody who'd already had that experience and been through that journey? I think it's crucial. There's that cliche of you have to see it to be it. But it really did make a difference to me meeting women. It wasn't just I had one friend, as you mentioned, who's a character in the book, and I sort of follow her journey a little bit as well. But I also met this whole community of solo mums. There was a support group meeting um, in Melbourne where I live. And I joined a Facebook group online and I connected with all these women. I saw them living their lives and I saw that they weren't just sort of surviving. They were thriving. And I saw the sort of whole spectrum of what the journey was like. And that was incredibly important for me. I think finding those women and being able to message with them. A lot of us, you know, we still message each other. We don't all live necessarily that close to each other, but we're in touch and we support each other. and we have this sort of unique understanding of what it is that we're going through. So I think that was crucial. And it's, I always say, I think my one piece of advice or, you know, I have a few pieces of advice, but one of them would be for women thinking about this path is sort of find the other people that are doing this and talk to them and, you know, become part of a community who's doing this. I think it's, I fully agree. It's so important for me. And I always say, 
you know, there's nobody that understands your situation quite like another solo parent, even if they're in different circumstances, they just seem to get, you know, what you're experiencing a lot more than people who are parenting in a, in a different way. So that can be so reassuring, can't it, when people really understand your, your circumstances? Yeah, it really is. You, yeah, you do have this shorthand for what you you know, you don't have to explain a lot of things to them. And it's funny because I had this sort of utopian ideal that maybe I would like live in a momune of like women who all yeah. have babies or whatever. You know, like wouldn't it be great if there was an apartment building or something like that. And funnily enough, you know, since writing Inconceivable and now having a four-year-old, I moved into a building not far from where I lived before and my neighbour which is who was through that door on the other side is a solo parent. She has a six-year-old. And so just the odds of that. And I think it shows how much this community is growing, you know, in Australia and also globally, like single women are the largest group using donor sperm mm. before, you know, just ahead of same-sex couples in Australia anyway. Like, and I think those stats bear out globally as well. Yeah. And so, yeah, there is this sort of growing community of people and it's such a comfort to know them and to, have that support system and then talking about support systems so I'm really lucky that when I told my mum that I was doing this she's like fully behind me she gives loads of childcare. I moved actually to be like three minutes <laughs> drive around the corner from her to somewhere I never thought I'd end up living but it's totally worth it to get that support she I think just wanted more than anything to become a granny and she <laughs> was super supportive of, I think she would be like, whatever you want to do <laughs> to, to get where you want to get. I love it. it. I love it. In, in the book, you talk about your relationship with your mum, which seems a little bit more complicated. H how has that played out for you and, and how difficult or, or easy has that been? Yeah, well, my mum is the villain in the book she knows this she's read it I was obviously. going to ask and... you if has she read it and is she happy with that yes. yes she's read the book she's well it's funny because she's she's a she's a real character without spoiling too much but she's read Inconceivable and the first thing she said to me was you know it wouldn't be very interesting without me <laughs> I love it I really love... in character with her kind of formidable quirky personality because she's the antagonist she's the obstacle to the story in a lot of ways and she said to me very early on women who have babies on their own are selfish and they're only thinking about themselves and not the child and I write about our relationship a lot in this memoir it's obviously becoming a parent as well as wrestling with my own relationship with my mother which I think you know we all have to do when we become parents we sort of wrestle with whatever that dynamic is that we have with our parents and I spent a lot of time thinking about what she meant by that and it was a real obstacle in a way because I trusted my mom my mom's a doctor she works with babies she's you know very educated smart progressive thinker and so I it was really hard for me to sort of push against her ideas and her when the people who you need to support you the most your own parents are opposed to the idea so that was a journey and it has been a long journey but ultimately I will say that as fraught as our relationship is my mother also wanted to have a grandchild and my son is the first grandchild in the family and that when a baby arrives no one questions how the baby got there. Everyone loves a baby, especially grandparents. 
projects. And so it has been a real sort of arc in terms of where we were and where we've come to. And, you know, I think our relationship is still complicated, but my mum definitely loves my son dearly and is an important person in his life. So it's, yeah, it's been, been complicated. And I think it mirrors what a lot of other women experience as well, because I talked to some, you know, people who are going down this path or thinking about it and they read the book and said, oh my God, inconceivable. That is exactly what my parents were like, or my parents are Catholic and they said this, or, you know, it's not always, you know, my parents weren't, aren't religious, but I think a lot of parents have this sort of very traditional worldview. And I think what my parents wanted is for me to be happy. So there was a kind of a coming out process to telling them about what I was doing to sort of borrow queer terminology. And my mum said to me, ultimately, I'm glad that you gave us a lot of time to think about it and that you told us what you were thinking about doing because my parents had to grieve the narrative that I had projected for my own life in the same way that I did. And I think sometimes it takes us years to come to that conclusion, but we expect our parents to come to it the moment we tell them. So like I might have been considering it for three years, but then I tell my mum and I want her to be immediately supportive, but it's not really fair because I've been working through it for so long. Um, I think most of the time we just want our parents to agree with us immediately, don't they? But yeah, I think that generation, many parents do just need a little bit of time to come to terms with it. But like you say, the vast majority of people I speak to say no matter what their parents thought when an actual child is in the picture it's it's just a child all of the backstory is gone exactly and how involved in your son's life um is your are your parents now my parents are great my dad is very hands-on so he parents plays and you know feeds him dinner and gives him a bath and gets him ready for bed so that's really helpful for me when I'm working well, I am working, I should say. So that helps me on a weekly basis to have someone do that one pickup a week. And they're also, you know, if I need to go out or, you know, they're often willing to babysit. It's uh, my, they're, they're really crucial in, in a lot of ways. And I also, like you, Mel, I moved about a 15 minute drive from my parents to another part of town that I wouldn't have moved to unless I was having a baby on my own. So, and I'm so glad I did that to be closer to them and have, you know, access to that help and that support. Perfect. One of the things that your mum said in the book, which really made me chuckle, was I think you were asking her when you were, again, thinking about relationships, you know, what what would a, a partner be good for in a relationship? And your mum said sex. <laughs> that just really made me chuckle. <laughs> <laughs> and I really like that you can have those uh, conversations with family as well. It, it, it's really nice to have. One of the things you say in the book, just which I'm interested in, is that you felt lonely sleeping alone. I was just curious if you still feel like that, because I love sleeping alone and I cannot imagine ever sharing my bed with anyone. Do you still, does that still bring you a feeling of loneliness or is that different now? Well, I never sleep alone now, Mel, because (laughs) my four-year-old gets up every night in the middle of the night and comes into my bed. It's funny, I don't even remember remember writing that I might have been talking about when I was pregnant and there was I was wrestling with that idea of loneliness and wrestling with a sort of concept of being a single woman and how other people perceived me and yeah I I know I don't enjoy sleeping alone now even more because the moments I get my bed to myself are very rare exactly the same I'm in exactly the same position (laughs) 
um, getting a little a little person creeping in in the middle of the night happens here as well. One of the things that was just really fascinating because I'm a massive fan is that you talk about um, working for Esther Perel. I love her work, and so that must have been a super interesting um, experience. What 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 main things you learn from from doing that work? Yeah, it's funny because I started working for Esther just as I left New York and I was sort of newly single and I was doing some writing for her, for her blog. So uh, what I would do is have a Zoom session or a Skype session with her and we talk about a particular subject and then I would sort of write everything down and go away and type it up into an article. And it was, you know, it's such an incredible experience because obviously she is this guru who, who is incredibly charismatic and she, when she looks at you, she like looks into your soul, like she really sees you. And so I thought this is, Perfect. I'm newly single and I'm getting like wisdom from Esther Perel. And I write about this in Inconceivable as well, obviously. So I think the biggest thing that stuck with me, I mean, I got a lot of relationship advice from her, obviously, but was this idea, and she has a lot of, you know, wise things to say about many topics, but that this idea that we all have this longing for an unlived life. And especially because we have the internet now, we can sort of see our lives in parallel on Facebook. You know, we can see our ex-boyfriends. We can see our old school friends. We can see how other people are living their lives. And we sort of see what could have happened for us. And we have this sort of comparison going on. And I think that's very relevant to solo parenthood because there's this sense of, you know, the direction you think your life is going and the direction you actually choose. And... I often think about that and how sometimes it's easy to sort of get into a compare and despair and think, oh, that person has it easier. Like you see a couple at the park with their toddler or, you you know, you see other people having, you know, seemingly happy relationships with their children. But the thing is, you know, everyone, no one is living the perfect life and it's easy to sort of have this longing for someone else's existence, but you don't really know what's going on inside of that life. And ambivalence or, you know, uncertainty or, you know, is part of the human condition. And it's good to just accept that, that, you know, <laughs> that the life you're living is imperfect and the alternative life that you could have been living would also have been imperfect. So it kind of frees you in a lot of ways. So, yeah, I think that's just one of her many, many, many gifts of wisdom that she gives to all of us. Have you read Matt Haig's The Midnight Library? No. That is brilliant, very much along the same lines. And it's really, really powerful in terms of it explores all the different paths that we could have taken. And, you know, without a massive spoiler alert, it's around the path you took was the path that you were meant to take. But the way it's written is just really powerful, but but very similar sentiment. So, uh, yeah, totally agree. So many people are so busy thinking about what it would be in a different circumstance of what it could have been. And actually we just all need to focus on what it is <laughs> and then how we exactly. can make that the best. Yeah, I totally agree. In the book, you talk at the end, and this is something I've been giving a lot of consideration about, did you believe it was actually better to be single? And actually, did you choose this path? 
the very beginning, I don't think any of us think that we're choosing the path. We think that we are doing it because we can't meet somebody. Not everybody. There's some people who were never looking to meet someone. But many, many people I speak to say they tried to meet someone, they couldn't. And so then they decided to do this solo. But you were contemplating a bit about actually were you always meant to do this I, I've been thinking the same as well and actually started thinking could I have even done this in a partnership I'm not sure how good I would have been at it with a partner H how do you feel about that do, do you think it is something that you chose or do you think it is circumstance or do you not you're not sure mm. it's hard to know the answer to that I think I've always been a very ambitious decisive <laughs> willful kind of person I guess and very clear in some ways on what I want in my life like I always knew I wanted to be a, I knew I wanted to be a writer from a pretty early age and I pursued that pretty doggedly it's funny because ambition in women is a very frowned upon characteristic like knowing what you want and following that path you're allowed to do it but you kind of have to do it quietly or not sort of shout about it too much but so I always feel sort of slightly conflicted saying I, I'm ambitious, but I think, you know, I, I knew, I'm not saying I'm not full of self-doubt and anxiety and uh, constant questioning. I am, but I think there's a part of me that's always been very determined and sort of stubborn. And so I think it is interesting that I ended up choosing this thing despite the odds. It's like, you know, there's so many different ways this could have gone, but it's it's yeah it's interesting to me that I think we are at this particular nexus point in history as we were saying before where like we're this liberated sort of independent women and we have this option and it did appear to me as being ultimately first of all I felt like oh no this is sad and I wish I had a partner and I was sort of grieving it and then it ultimately shifted to something that felt quite liberating and so I think maybe that's part of my personality is that I sort of wasn't willing to wait around for a man to get on board like I it was just filling me with like such frustration and annoyance so yeah maybe it is baked into our DNA in some ways um but of course it's impossible to know you know and as you said I kind of look at couples and think god that looks really hard in some ways like that that's hard like I admire people who stick together and still love each other and don't you know show contempt for each other and seem to have great relationships and have children I think it's a really difficult thing to do I think our brains are hardwired according to psychology on looking for the positives in a different scenario so looking for the positives and only seeing the good parts and the fairy tale parts about parenting in a relationship and then looking at all the challenges of our own circumstances and I see so many people do that where we overlook all the amazing parts about doing this solo and so I'm always trying to point out and be very mindful of all the brilliant parts um, and the advantages of parenting solo and some of the challenges of parenting in a partnership because I just think automatically people tend to do the opposite and ultimately mm, I love that I always say some things are easier, some things are harder. It, you know, it, we, we, we don't need to necessarily compare, do we? But I just think so many people focus on a fairy tale version of parenting in a partnership um, that we need to, to balance yeah. that out a bit. I think that's really smart. 
I, I love that you do that. I think it, it is very easy. You do see this sort of narrative and I even see it on my solo mums group sometimes of like, oh, nobody else understands how hard we've got it. And it's like, yeah, you know, true. Like there are parts of this that are really difficult, but I think what you're pointing out is that it doesn't necessarily help you yeah. <laughs> to focus on the, the difficulties and the negative elements. I think we have to accept that you know, there will be times where you feel terrible in life and times that you feel great and, you know, it's okay to have the full spectrum of feelings. But, yeah, to focus on the negative elements doesn't necessarily make you feel better about your life. Definitely, <laughs> definitely not. A term that I definitely want to steal from you, which I love, you talked about early romantic madness. That was a term that you talked about in terms <laughs> of, I love that. And, and, I, and again, when I was dating some of the things that you tell yourself in in your in your mind about you know just letting go of all of the red flags of the absolute knowledge this is a terrible idea <laughs> but yeah you summed it up so nicely when you said early romantic madness I thought that was such a good summary of you know when when you're in that stage of dating particularly when you've got this time pressure over you so so I'm definitely going to steal yeah. that I loved it <laughs> Thanks. Um, so you've talked a little bit about advice, but what would you would your key advice be for people who were considering, apart from obviously buying and reading Inconceivable, which will help them <laughs> really understand the process, which I do genuinely recommend because it, it is such a great uh, overview of an entire sort of end-to-end journey and, and process. But what, what other advice would you have for people? I think there's a few things that are really useful when you're contemplating solo parenthood. One is to consider who your community is going to be around you. Is it going to be your immediate family? If you don't have family nearby, do you have a friend family or can you cultivate one? Can you move closer to your family for support? Because you're going to need that help. And it's kind of a misnomer in a way, solo parent, because you actually need a village of people to help you. So you can't do it alone. There's also, of course, like the financial and emotional considerations of IVF, and that's not to be overlooked. And that can be an incredibly fraught and complicated part of the journey. And, you know, trying to get pregnant itself is sort of like a can be very, very difficult. So I think it's good to think about, you know, can you afford it? You know, how will you afford a baby? And what emotional sort of support systems do you have in place to deal with the roller coaster potentially of how that's going to go that said I also think if you worry too much about money <laughs> you might never have a baby yeah. so sometimes you just have to sort of like plan to a certain extent but also move forward into the future thinking well I don't necessarily know that this like I wouldn't send yourself bankrupt obviously I'm not saying like don't necessarily listen to my financial advice but I don't think anyone's ever totally financially ready for a child so those are the two main things. And then, as I said before, finding a community of solo mums. And there's, you know, there's people online, there's people in real life. So there's ways to do that. There's those, and I'm sure you have access to those kind of resources in the UK for people to reach out to and become part of. Yeah, there's something so powerful about being part of that solo parent community, isn't there? perfect thank you so much i really really as i say loved the book i loved so much of it was so relatable because it's so similar to my own journey and so many others and it was just so well written and so easy to read so so lovely to chat to you about it thank you so much thank you for having me 
If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast and would like to access bonus episodes featuring donor-conceived people, psychologists and other experts, you can head over to my website, thestalkandi.com, to subscribe to the Thriving Solo membership. For $2.99 a month, you'll get access to members-only episodes as well as the entire back catalogue. You'll get access to useful resources and a monthly community call which are a great opportunity to meet people in a similar situation to you. On my website, you can also find more information about the coaching I offer. You can also follow me on Instagram at thestalkandi.com to get an insight into the realities of solo parent life.